the last two weeks, we've been in verses 3 through 6 of Philippians 1. But I feel there's more in verse 6 for us to get this morning. And so I thought we'd dwell here for one more week. This verse argues heavily against two opposing yet equally false doctrines, if you think about it. The first one teaches that you could lose your salvation. You know, there are people who believe that. There are whole denominations who believe that. If you sin, they say, you can fall out of a state of grace, which is not very encouraging because I do sin. I sin a lot. I need forgiveness a lot. I can't imagine my salvation depending upon me maintaining it. They rely heavily upon verses that emphasize that you must continue in the faith. Now I want you to know that these verses do mean what they say. I believe these verses. But the context that they are in is always continuing, is the fruit of true salvation, not a warning that we will lose our salvation. Where this doctrine fails is that it puts saving, as a, saving us as a work of Christ and maintaining that salvation as a work of us. That's the problem, okay? The Bible teaches that Christ is the beginning and the end of our faith, Hebrews 12.1. Christ didn't save us. Let's try to word this right. Christ didn't save us because of us. Christ didn't look down and go, well, there's a good people. I think I'll save them. Look how fantastic they are. I think I'll love them. Or they've, they've earned my love. Christ didn't save us because of us. Christ saved us because of him. He chose to set his love upon undeserving sinners. Therefore, since he never changes, his love never changes, his love is not contingent upon us, but upon him, the unchanging God, his love for us cannot change. Therefore, his offer of salvation to us cannot change. because It is predicated upon him, not upon us. Christ has declared us not guilty, Romans 8.1. And will not count our sins against us, Romans 4.8. There's another doctrine. Polar opposite from losing your salvation. But equally false. I'm going to blow your mind with this one. because You're going to hear this, you're going to say, but pastor, I believe that. You don't really believe that. It's called once saved, always saved. It's the opposite of losing your salvation. It's you can never lose your salvation, no matter how wicked you want to live. There's the problem. Listen, I believe, and our church subscribes to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which teaches perseverance of the saints. Those who are saved, truly saved, will persevere to the end. Because Christ in us perseveres. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Once saved, always saved doesn't teach that. They teach that as long as you make a mental profession of faith, regardless if you want to serve Christ or not, you're saved, and you can never lose that. You can live however you want to, and you're just as saved because it's only a mental decision, not a change of the heart. So it's polar opposite of losing your salvation, but it's just as false. It's just as false.
John 3.16 says, Whosoever believeth on him shall have everlasting life. This is not a one-time belief, by the way. The word believeth in John 3.16 is the Greek word pistuo, which is an action verb. So in other words, John is saying, those who believe and keep on believing will not perish but have everlasting life. That's not a one-time decision. That's not a sign a card and you're in the club. That's a, you, keep, you believe and you keep on believing. Right? Salvation is a flashpoint. There's a point in time where we are born again. We are saved. But salvation as a process to glorification does not stop. It's an ongoing process. We are more and more sanctified. Not through us, but through Christ. He changes our heart to conform us to Christ until the ultimate day we get to heaven and we are glorified with him. The process he starts at this flashpoint continues through our whole life. To say that you can have the flashpoint salvation and then just go on living in sin, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. James tells us that faith without works is dead, James 2.26, and that works actually justify our profession of faith, James 2.21 and 22. So both of these doctrines are false, and our text this morning, to me, demonstrates it. He which has begun a good work in you will perform it. He will continue it. He will complete it. What does that say to the person who says you can lose your salvation? He's performing the work. Yes. Not me. What does it say to the one saved, always saved? He says, just, just have that instant moment of belief, and then after that, do whatever you want. He will perform this work. And his work is not that we continue on in sin. So if we continue on in sin, there's no work going on. That means he never began the work. That means we're not saved. I remember... Uh, pastor once he's out sharing the gospel and this lady she made her living by having yard sales you know she was I think maybe on disability but she got seven little income by having yard sales and the pastor talked to her in her yard witnessed to her got her to pray a sinner's prayer I said oh great when did she come to church he goes well she's not going to come to church because Sundays are her best day for her yard sales but I, I think she was sincere I think she really trusted Christ Really? No follow through. No desire to follow Christ or be among God's. That's not salvation. That's not salvation. We were at a church. Who was it that told me they were horrified by my, I think it was Earl was horrified by my church. I have so many church stories. I grew up in a really bad American evangelical churches. I, <laughs> I had a pastor. We had a pastor that... Uh, this man claimed to be saved. Says, oh, pray for this man. We want him to come to church, but you know he works on Sunday, so he really wants to be here, but he can't be here. I told my wife, I said, he owns the company. If he wanted his schedule clear, his schedule could be clear. He doesn't want to come to church. There's another man. You know, Pray for so-and-so. Uh, he's a Christian, and he's a part of our church. He wants to join our church and have a church family. He can never come to church because he works every service. Well, then he, we kind of looked at each other. He's not going to have a church. You don't have a church family just by having your name written down on a roll somewhere. If you're never there, you're not part of the church. Then the church went to having 
online Wednesday night services because people weren't coming to the in-person one. So let's try, let's try to get more cooperative. If they don't have to leave their house, maybe we can get them to be part of the church service. Even though, by the way, it's not a church service online, right? It's just not. And so uh, this is just before I came here, so he asked me to teach one. And so I taught one. I'm not opposed to teaching online if people want to listen, but I made it clear this is not church. I'm like, like we had phone conversations. Me and the pastor had some heated, raised voice phone where they're like this. I want you to say I'm going to do this, but this is not church. I'm not conceding this is church. His wife was on the Zoom Bible study, but he wasn't. You know why? He was off that night. It's a Wednesday night. I'm like he could come to church on a Wednesday night then. But his wife, heard his wife said, you want to come over to the couch and listen to some teaching? His answer from across the room is no. He didn't want to come to church. He didn't want to follow Christ. I'm sorry to say, he's not saved. There's no work of God going on in his heart. But at some point, he prayed a prayer. And someone told him, once saved, always saved. No. That's not biblical. Look again at our text. Being confident. Right? Paul's not like maybe in some cases God will complete the work he starts. That's not what he's confident of this very thing that he which had begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What a bold statement Paul starts with. Being confident. Paul isn't wishy-washy. He's not full of doubts. He's confident. He's sure. I'm sure that what God has started, he's going to finish. I'm convinced of this. This is the same confidence that Abraham had with Isaac when he went to sacrifice them. We've talked about that over and over again, haven't we? Abraham wasn't wishy-washy. He wasn't weak in faith, the Bible says. I Here I go again. I had a pastor one time. That preached from Abraham sacrificing Isaac. He said, oh, that night before must have been terrible. Uh, Abraham must have been all, all night pacing back and forth. Oh, Lord, how can I do this? Oh, Lord, why would you ask me to do this? Oh, Lord, just full of doubt. I thought, told my wife, that's not what happened in the Bible. He was not weak in faith. He didn't stumble to the promise of God. Abraham was confident. You guys stay here. Me and him, we're going to sacrifice. And we, we're going to come back to you again. He was confident. I'm taking Isaac. Isaac is the sacrifice, and Isaac's coming back with me. That's the confidence that Paul has here. I am confident, Philippian church, that he which began a work in you, he will complete it all the way through. There's no wishy-washy. There's no, there's, no, there's no wavering in the faith. There's no, well, maybe he will or maybe he won't. Paul is confident in the promises of God. There's so much doubt in the church today, isn't there? Having grown up in church, I've seen hundreds, hundreds profess Christ at a young age, three, four, two years old, and then go back for a reassurance at 13, 14, and then again at 23, 24, then again at 34, 35, racked with doubt about their salvation, and rightfully so. So many people today live in doubt as to whether they're truly saved. 
Paul wasn't that person. Paul didn't doubt. Paul wasn't nervous. He was confident of the work of God. This is the same apostle that urged people to examine themselves, whether they're in the faith. His confidence wasn't founded in closing his eyes and hoping for the best. It's not a leap in the dark that Paul has. He has his eyes wide open, and he believes the promises of God. I've had pastors tell me, you should never encourage someone to question their salvation. That's not what Paul did. Paul says, examine yourselves. Make sure you're in the, make sure you're saved. Hey, there's a lot of people, I will grab hold of them and say, you need to examine yourself. I don't think you're saved. He used to have a pastor as a little kid. I love the guy, but I think he's wrong. Somebody come forward in church and pray a prayer. And you tell them, now when you walk out that door, don't ever let anyone tell you you're not saved. Hold up there a minute. That's not biblical. If there's no work in your heart, if you go on and sin, you have every right to question your salvation. You should question your salvation. Others should question your salvation. That's not Paul's mentality. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. The reason so many doubt their salvation today, if you want to be honest, my opinion, they're looking to themselves for their salvation. They're looking to themselves. If my salvation rested upon me, I have every right to doubt it. I am a wishy-washy person. One minute I like something, one minute I don't. Sometimes I wake up feeling holy, sometimes I wake up feeling unholy. Sometimes I have get up and go, serve the Lord, and sometimes I drag myself out serving the Lord. If it depended on me, I'd be in trouble. And so many Christians today are taught to look to themselves, and they look to themselves, and they go, oh, I don't know if I'm really saved. We have a very self-based message in the American church today. Most sermons are about better relationships, better marriages, better parenting, and so on. We use the Bible as a handbook to be our best selves. That's what we're doing. There's a dearth of gospel preaching in the church today. Much of what goes on in churches today is religious self-help. This is why our view of election and predestination is so skewed. How dare God tell us what to do? <laughs> I'm my own person. I decide what I do. We choose him. He doesn't choose us, or at the very least, he chooses us because we first choose him. How dare we think that God has the choice? That's the American church today. We're very self-involved. We are the captains of our own destiny. By the way, there's an atheist who quoted that originally in a poem. It's amazing how atheistic the American church can be. Predestination is an insult on our own feeling of self-control and self-determination. We have a relative who said, if God chooses, I don't want to be chosen. If it's up to him, I'd rather go to hell. It's got to be up to me or nothing at all. Amy had a conversation the other day with a relative whose salvation is definitely questionable. This person isn't a part of a local church. 
married to a oneness Pentecostal who's definitely not saved, and to, to his own admission, never talks religion in his home. But uh, he was sure upset that we believed in predestination. So in spite of all his glaring sin issues, not part of a church, married to an unbeliever, never reads his Bible, doesn't pray, but boy, how dare you believe that about God? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. What, 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 what was hurt? His pride. I mean, even if he doesn't do those things he should be doing, as a, if he claims to be a Christian, that's his choice. But God to decide for him? How dare he? I think you have a lot more issues to be upset about in your life than what we believe. Honestly. Living in complete rebellion to the word of God, but angry that we believe that God is sovereign. He, of course, would never answer scriptures. He only ignored the scriptures and gave analogy after analogy about why it can't be true. All those analogies, by the way, he got from somebody on the internet. So the Bible gives us a very God-centered view of salvation. I know we've discussed this before, but a reminder is good. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at the Bible's idea of salvation versus what we see in the American church. We'll see why we doubt our salvation so much. Ephesians 2. The gospel is preached to dead sinners. Not sick and dying sinners. Dead sinners. Again, I brought this up before. Can the dead do anything? No. If the Bible wanted to give the analogy that we were sick and dying, it should have said we were sick and dying. When it uses dead, it wants us to understand dead. We can do nothing, right? Salvation is not Jesus in a lifeboat throwing a life preserver out to struggling sinners who are drowning, and we reach up by our own cho choice and grab that, and he rescues us. Salvation is a drowned man at the bottom of the ocean that Jesus dives down, brings him back, puts him on the boat, rows him to shore, puts him on the sand, and brings him back to life. That's salvation. If you want an analogy or a picture, that's what it is. The dead can do nothing. Ephesians 2.1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Quicken means be made alive. You hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You didn't bring yourself to life. He brought you to life. If you're saved, it's because of Christ, not because of you or me. Understand that. God does this. How does he do it? By grace through faith. Look at verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Well, I had faith, and so God saved me. That's not how it works. Dead people can't have faith. They must first be made alive to have faith. If this faith comes from within us, we could boast about it, couldn't we? Luke verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. If salvation were because we were just so smart and so good and so faithful, we could get to heaven one day and go, boy, I'm so glad I have faith. My wife, she didn't. She was lost. I was so, so fortunate I'd make better decisions than she does. Right? Nobody in heaven is saying that. They're before the throne saying, you purchased us by your blood and every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. This is your work, not ours. In verse 8, it says that it is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? Well, some would argue grace. Her relative did. Grace is the gift of God. No problem with that. 
Grace, by its definition, is unmerited favor, unearned favor. So by its very definition, it's a gift. So repeating it's a gift is redundant and unnecessary. It makes no sense. It's clear the gift is referring back to the thing that could come from ourselves, which is not grace, but faith. You're saved by the grace of God through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We're also called to repent of our sins. Repent of our sins. Turn to 2 Timothy 2, 25. Maybe that comes from us. If the faith doesn't come from us, and the coming back from the dead doesn't come from us, maybe the repentance comes from us. Follow me here. 2 Timothy 2.25 In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if peradventure, that word means perhaps, if perhaps, God will, if God perhaps will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Even repentance comes from God, not from us. He gives them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So the question comes in, don't we have free will? Yes, we do. Uh, I don't want you to think, well, a pastor doesn't believe in free will. Her relative would say that. Well, you guys don't believe in free will. No, we do. Our will is bound to our nature. I believe in free will. Sinners sin because it's their nature to sin. And they're bound to their nature. They can't do righteousness because they have a fallen nature. Our nature is fallen and depraved, so we will never choose God and righteousness unless he acts first to free our will. The only truly free will is the Christian. We now have the, the freedom to choose to do righteousness because we have a new nature within us. We also have that old corrupt nature, so we can choose to do unrighteousness. The only truly free will is the Christian, not the unbeliever. They can't do righteousness uh, in and of themselves. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. I want you to see that I believe in free will. Philippians 2, 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's our will. We're not robots. We're not puppets. We choose to come to Christ freely because God has worked in us to will to do that. It's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So both the choosing and the doing come from him, not from within us. Do you understand that? God has freed our will. So when we come to Christ, he doesn't force us to be saved, does he? We want to be saved, right? We choose to be saved, right? Why? Because God has freed our will. Those who reject Christ, reject Christ of their own free will. They, he doesn't force them to reject him, but they can only do what their nature allows, which is reject the truth, sin. He doesn't make them reject him. They want to. I remember once we, I say this a lot, we were in a church where the guy was preaching about predestination. He goes, the doctrine of predestination is the doctrine that people come to God begging to be saved. And he says, nope, I didn't choose you. That's baloney. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
they will not come to him unless their will is freed. And all who come to Christ, he says, I'll never cast away. All who come to me, I'll never cast away. We'll get there in just a minute. They will not respond without his aid, the sinner. Why doesn't he just bring everyone to life then? Good question. Go to Romans chapter 9, verse 15. Romans 9, 15. The Bible says, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, or, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will, uh, on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. So why doesn't God bring everyone to life? Because he's chosen to show his glory, both in salvation and destruction of sinners. And so he's chosen to bring some sinners... Understand this, if God didn't work to bring dead sinners to life, all sinners would perish, you and I included. So of the mass of sinful humanity who could never come to God because they are fallen and depraved, God in his mercy has chosen to open the eyes of some to bring them to life, to save them, to show his glory through his mercy. In others, he has not forced them to sin, but rather left them in their sins in order to show the righteous just, just, justice of his judgment in their destruction. So the Bible teaches. That's why he does. That's why he doesn't bring everyone back to life. Because he's showing his glory in both his grace and his justice. Both are right. Both are just. Why would God do this? There's an answer to that. Look at verse 22. What if God, this is what I just told you, is kind of repeating what the scripture says here, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now some get upset and accuse God of being unfair. Let me stop here. If God was fair, we would all perish. We don't want fairness, okay? Grace by its very nature must be free. If God owes everyone the same grace, then it's not grace, okay? Uh, one pastor tried to tell me that election impugns the character of God. He said God owes everyone the same opportunity to be saved. I told him, I said, God owes no one anything. No one. And I said, plus you don't believe that. Because you know that there are people who live their whole lives and never hear the gospel. And there are people who hear it a thousand times. They don't have the same opportunity. There are people who live in America where they have ample access to the gospel. And people who live in China where they don't. They don't have the same opportunity. See, your, your argument isn't that God is unfair. Your argument is that you hate that God is in control. And you want to be God. Because if you want fairness, you would say, yeah, it's unfair that everyone is hearing the gospel the same amount of times. It's unfair that there's not the same gospel saturation in Sudan as there is in the United States. God's being so unfair. He wouldn't say that. And nobody would. They only say it about election because they want to be the ones who decide for God, not God for them. That's the problem. 
It's not about God's fairness. It's about our perception that we're in charge. It's our self-determination that's the problem. The issue is that we see ourselves as the ultimate will in the galaxy, the universe. And God is our servant who must do as we say. Verse 19. What does the scripture say to that attitude? Thou wilt say that unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath thou the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? I remember getting the arguments me and Amy with her family over this doctrine. And they'd say, well, how can God find fault with people? We're like, that's the, that's the word for word what the Bible answers. You just don't like the Bible's answer. Who are you to question God? Second, like that pastor told me, well, that, that doctrine, that, that impugns the character of God. Who are you to decide the character of God? Who are you to say to God, you can't do that? Wait a minute. There's a lot of pride there. To stand before the Almighty God and say, you must be this way? I'm not afraid to name names. Amy's dad once told me. I hope he's watching this. He needs to be saved. He once told me, if I get to heaven and stand before God and I find out that election was true, I'm going to point my finger in his face and say, send me to hell because you're not worthy of my worship. Who are you, old man? Can the clay save the potter? Why have you done No. The potter has the right to do what the potter wants to do. You understand that? I have family members today who are unsaved. And if they die and they go to hell, I'm not going to be angry with God. You know why? I don't have the right to be. He can do what he wants to do. I can't say anything because he's God, I'm not. And he's just. And when I look upon them in the lake of fire one day, I will say that it's just and right. Because God is God. We have got to divorce this idea that God owes us something. He doesn't owe us an explanation. He doesn't owe us the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't owe us anything. Who are you, O oh man, to argue back to God? This passage in Romans 9 is eerily similar to Job. Remember that? God appears to Job. We'll go to Job 42. God appears to Job and basically says, you got something to say? Gird up like a man and say it. That's what God says to him. He says, but answer this first. <laughs> Can you do what I do? Can you lay the foundation of the earth? Can you bring the snow? Can you feed the eagles? Can you calve the deers? Can you control the seasons? Can you control the stars and call them by name? Can you make the planet rotate just perfectly around the sun? Can you make all the comets and all the stars out the galaxies do what they're doing? What does Job say in verse 2? <clears throat> I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore am I uttered that I, that I understood not, things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. There are a lot of people, and a lot of preachers, who today, this morning, puff out their chest and say, He doesn't choose us, we choose him. Who are one day going to say, I spoke things too wonderful for me, I didn't understand. I abhor myself. I think the pastor told me that if God's character is impugned if he's choosing who's saved. We'll stand before God one day and say, I abhor myself. I can't believe I said that. Basically, what Job is saying here is the clay has no right to speak back to the potter. I don't understand what you're doing, God. Salvation is a divine act of God. Our actions in coming are in response to his work, not our own. Go to Acts 13, 48. Acts 13, 48. See, why are you getting into the election of predestination? Because I want to show you why the American church is so full of doubt about their salvation. They don't see it as a work of God, first of all. It's something they just simply choose to go along with. Not realizing that God has begun this work. If you came to Christ, it's because God brought you to life. God gave you faith. God gave you repentance. God opened your eyes. God brought you to confess him by, by, by mouth. God brought you here to worship him. God is the one doing the work in your heart, not you. <laughs> Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. What does ordained mean? Chosen. As many as were chosen to eternal life believed. Not as many as chose him believed, but as many as he ordained believed. Go to Acts 16, 14. Their believing was a response to their being ordained or chosen. For six, chapter 16, verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which are spoken of by Paul. Why did she respond to Paul's message and get saved? Because she was so good and so righteous that she made a good decision to get saved. No. Whose heart the Lord opened. What does that mean? You hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, God made her alive spiritually, freed her will so now she could choose to come to Christ. And by the way, if God brings you to life spiritually, you're going to choose to come to Christ. A living person is not going to stay in a tomb. Oh, no thanks, I'm good in here. Right? He called Lazarus out of the tomb, and Lazarus went like, thanks Jesus, I'm good, it's nice in here. No, when Lazarus was dead, the tomb was appropriate. When Jesus raised it and said, Lazarus, come forth, what did Lazarus do? He woke up, he's like, I'm not going to stay here anymore, I'm going to go to him. So there's nobody who Christ raises from the dead that goes, no thanks, I want to sin. We don't stay there. We come to him when he opens our hearts. Go to John chapter 10, verse 26. Concerning Lydia, her heart was opened by the Lord, not by her own will. 
her will then activated goes to Christ freely of her own choice. John 10, 26. This is an important one. They're all important, I guess, but... This is Jesus speaking. He says, but ye believe not because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you. You notice that Jesus doesn't say what most American churches say today. Most American churches say, you're not of my sheep because you don't believe. He doesn't say that. You don't believe because you're not of my sheep. They're not being his sheep. His chosen, his elect, is why they don't believe. Well, if you just believe, you can become part of my sheep. No, no, no. If you were part of the sheep, you would believe. If, if, if predestination is wrong, Jesus misspoke here really badly and kind of made himself a heretic because he put believing as reliant upon being his sheep not being his sheep reliant upon believing. Go to John chapter 6. John 6, 44. The Bible says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath given, sent me and draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. I leave the other one out. I think I left the other one out of my notes. It's in John chapter 6 also. I don't remember the verse. You remember the verse, honey? All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will know why he's cast out. I got a candy bar for whoever finds that verse for me. John 6 something. 37. 37. Jason gets a candy bar. <laughs> John 6, 37. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. Right? All that the Father has given to me will come to me. Then John 6, 44. No man can come except the Father which has sent me draw him. That's the same group as the Father gives him, draws him. Same thing. So all the Father gives will come. And Jesus said they can't come unless they're given to the Father. And I'll raise them up at the last day. That means everybody who the Father gives to the Son comes to the Son and is raised up at the last day. None is lost. Fooey on losing your salvation. None is lost. But to come, they must be given to the Father. Look at verse 65. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come to, unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Unless it were given unto him of my Father. All the Father gives shall come. You can't come unless you're drawn by the Father. You cannot come unless it's given to you of the Father. That hurts, doesn't it? Our American self-determination nerve, it really hits that nerve, doesn't it? I'm in charge. I have the ultimate say. No, you don't. Who does Jesus raise from spiritual deadness? Right? You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Most evangelicals will say, anyone who chooses for him to do it. Go to John 5, 25. 
Let's look at that. Who does Jesus raise from spiritual deadness? John 5, 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now we know these are the spiritually dead, not the physically dead, because the physically dead are mentioned separately in verse 28. That the day was coming when all who were in the graves would hear his voice. But in that verse, Jesus says the time is coming, and now is, when the dead, not in the graves, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. This is the spiritually dead. Some would argue, well, the spiritually dead who choose to hear his voice, they live. Look back at verse 21. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. But doesn't he will everyone? You've heard it, I've heard it. He's not willing that any should perish, but all come to If that's talking about salvation and all people, then surely Jesus raises everyone from the dead. Well, the problem you have there is you'd have to have universalism. Everyone's saved. Because what spiritually alive person is going to want to live like a dead man? No. The son quickens whom he will. So it says the time is coming when those who are, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear live. Those who hear, hear because he chooses for them to hear. What does he say in John 10? My sheep hear my voice. And tells them, oh, you're not of my sheep. That's why you don't believe. That's why you don't hear my voice. You're not of my sheep. You know, we preach the gospel out on the streets, and there's a lot of people who don't listen. It falls on deaf ears, you would say. You know why? Because Jesus hasn't given them ears to hear. Or not at this time. Maybe they will at a later time. Right? Remember Paul was talking about, uh, I think it was in Galatians, when he talked about when God chose to reveal his son in him. Isn't that an interesting term? When God chose to reveal his son in me. Not when I came to Christ, when I chose to get saved. It's as if the election of God was there the whole time. And at some point, God decided to raise Paul from the dead spiritually. He heard his voice and he revealed that ordaining in Paul. That's what Paul's saying there. Go to John 17, 2 real quick. John 17, 2, one more. Then we'll move on. But it doesn't get much easier going on because we're going on to the sinner's prayer. So hang on. John 17, 2. As thou, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, talking about the, the Father has given the Son power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Who is Jesus giving eternal life to? Whoever wants it. Yes. Because the only people who want it are those he raises from the dead. Who's he raising from the dead? Those who the Father gave him to raise from the dead. That's who he's raising from the dead. There's a specific people in view. So our view of the cause of salvation is skewed. We believe that we are the ultimate cause and that God looked in the future, saw we would believe, and chose us based on what we did. Do you understand that? The average church in America teaches that God, first of all, didn't know the future, had to look and learn. Okay, first of all, he's not God anymore. But secondly, he looked in the future, he saw you would believe, and said, I'm going to choose them because they chose me first. 
Your salvation in that situation is based entirely on you. You're the cause and effect of your salvation. You believe first, so he chose you. Even though John says we love him because he first loved us, but that's besides the point. Here I go again. I had a pastor once that was preaching against the doctrine of election. That's ridiculous. We choose, we choose. God doesn't choose us. In the same sermon, same sermon, he said, God looked down the, the annals of time and he saw I would believe and he chose me based on that. I told her that we left church. I said, in the same sermon, he said, God didn't choose me based on any good within me and that God chose him entirely based on the good in him in choosing God first. It's a complete contradiction. A complete, because when you get away from the, the moorings of the word of God, all you have is contradiction. Not just in the secular world, but in the this, in this scriptural world as well. If it's true that God chose us based on us choosing him, then our salvation is entirely because of us. Then we make the act of salvation man-centered, don't we? If you ask most professing believers how they got saved, what are they going to tell you? I gave my life to Christ. I committed my life to Christ. I prayed and asked Jesus in my heart. I prayed a sinner's prayer. Something similar, maybe. Let me say that some people do pray and cry out to God as a result of the work God does in their heart. That's not wrong. We're not judging that. What I'm judging today is the idea that there is a prayer that is the means of our salvation. That's not biblical. That's not how we're saved. If somebody gets saved and cries out to the Lord, it's the result of their salvation, not the cause of it. Sinner's prayer teaching is that that's how we're saved. You pray these words and then you're saved. If a prayer was the way to enter life, then the Bible would have said so. We would read Acts 16.30 differently, wouldn't we? And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, pray and ask Jesus in your heart. That's what it would say. What does it say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Remember a uh, brother in Christ, I hope, I think, one time he's telling his testimony at church and uh, he said, I, the Lord got a hold of my heart on Saturday night at home and my wife been witnessing to me and I've been to church a few times and I realized I was a sinner and that Christ died for my sins and I just wept tears and I thanked him for it and then I came to church the next day and got saved. Like, brother, you didn't come to church again. You were saved Saturday night when your heart was melted before God and you were took Christ as your Savior. You weren't saved when you came to church and walked the aisle at the end and prayed the sinner's prayer. You were already saved. I had a, a friend who went to prison and uh, he got saved. It, really, it was a really miraculous salvation. He's cuckoo, but he's saved. Uh, he, was, he was in prison for theft. And he, wanted, he was bored, he, he couldn't leave his cell, he was on lockdown, so he wanted a book to read. The only book left on the book cart was the Bible. So he gets the Bible and he opens up Ephesians 4. And the first verse he looks at is, let him that stole steal no more. And he realized, God has me pegged. 
And he cried out to the Lord. He repented of his sin. Started going to church there in the prison, worshiping. Finally gets released, goes to a church, tells his testimony. Like, oh, brother, you're not saved. Next service, at the end of the service, we have an invitation. You come forward. Someone will pray with you. You'll sign our decision card. That means you're saved. Like, you were saved months before in prison, but that wasn't salvation to them. It was the, the stuff we do over here. That's false. That's wrong. I won't spend a lot of time on this. Just one, one passage. Go to Romans 10. Romans 10. Verse 9. Paul says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What we see here is not a prescription for a worded sinner's prayer. Uh, the context of the chapter is ethnic Israel and the fact that they can still be saved. You write verse 1 of chapter 10, that's what the context is. It's Israel. They're saved by believing, the same as we are, and that believing will have an outward effect, which is confession of Christ publicly. Uh, this passage is very similar to James. We references Abraham and Rahab being justified by works. He means, and Paul means, that their works justified their claim to faith. There was a price to being a Jew and proclaiming Christ publicly. Those who were truly saved would confess Christ publicly and pay that price as uh, evidence that their profession of faith was real, just like we see in James chapter 2. Verse 10 says that with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. This is the way of salvation. The heart believes, and righteousness is imputed to the sinner. So what about the phrase, confession is made into salvation? Do you have to pray a prayer to be saved? No. The verb rendered confess is homologio. It is found 24 times in 21 verses. In at least 23 of these 24 times, a believer's public confession before men is the context, not private prayer. The only time we see it used about private prayer is in 1 John 1, 9, and that verse is not about an unsaved person, but about saved people confessing their sins to Christ and being forgiven. That's the only use of the word in terms of prayer. So what about verse 13? The calling in verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The calling is not an individual praying a sinner's prayer. It's about all men, regardless of being Jew or Gentile, being able to get saved. Look at verse 12 and 13. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the context there is not an individual, but rather Jew or Gentile. Okay? It's a quote from Joel 2, which has the same application. We see a similar wording in Genesis 4.26. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. It'd be hard to fit a sinner's prayer into the book of Genesis, right? So that's obviously not what it's talking about. So we're not saved by praying, but by believing in the heart. How do we know that someone gets saved without a prayer? And that's the problem a lot of churches have. They want to record. They want to brag about the numbers. So we have the prayer. So we can say, all right, this one got saved. 42 saved, 79 saved. We were joking on the psalm sing the other night. Uh, a friend of ours posted from a church that he knows where they had, I wish I, 
Is this proper in the pulpit? I'm just going to pull it up. I don't want to misquote it. <laughs> Pastors can use Facebook in the pulpit too. <laughs> Benjamin watches this. He's going to laugh at this. Because I'm pulling up his, uh, his post. There we are. The pastor posted, a record-breaking Sunday, we had over 880 in church, 801 in Sunday school, 96 saved in the services, and 17 baptized. First of all, if you only have 17 baptized out of 96 professions of faith, that's not very good follow-through. I wouldn't brag about that. Because in the Bible, those who got saved got baptized. That's a big, big number. But he posts this picture in the comments, and... Uh, the picture is a, a thick stack of decision cards. If you zoom in on it, it says junior church decision cards. You know what they did, right? For bragging purposes, they got buses and they brought a whole bunch of kids into the neighborhood, gave them candy, taught them a lesson, asked who wants to burn in hell forever. Nobody said yes. Who wants to go to heaven with Jesus? They all raised their hand and they got them all to pray a prayer so they could brag on the internet. That's exactly, so you're judging. No, that's what, I've been in those churches. I know what happened. The sinner's prayer is a way to boast about how many. How many? Most of the time, they're not even saved. How do we know people are saved? Well, first of all, they'll confess to Christ publicly. They will. They'll want to stand in front of the church and say, hey, I, I became a, I, got, I trusted Christ. And they're going to do it by baptism. I want to be baptized. I got saved. A saved person gets baptized. What Christ commanded. They want to be obedient to Christ. If they're truly saved, they're going to get baptized. That's a public profession of faith. And they're going to live a different life. Their life will change because their heart has changed. Because there's a new nature now put inside of them that is the righteous nature of Christ. That's how we know. So back to the question of examining ourselves. First of all, too much self-examination can be sinful, I think. There comes a point where we obsess with it and we are actively doubting the Word of God. That being said, there is some good self-examination. People are in doubt about their salvation because they look inwardly at themselves for their assurance of salvation. First of all, they see salvation as completely within them. That's why I got into predestination election. To show you, it's not within you or me. It's all of Christ. The faith, the repentance... The ears to hear, the eyes to see, the opened heart to respond to the gospel, all of that came from God, not from you. So stop looking to you as the assurance of your salvation. Look to God. Okay? Secondly, it didn't come by a prayer you prayed. Do you know how many people, did I pray it, did I say it right? I met one person who prayed 25 different versions of the sinner's prayer over their lifetime just in case they left a word out or got something wrong or right. They're looking for their prayer to save them. That's no different than a Roman Catholic. Prayers don't save. Faith saves. Faith given by Christ saves. So when people, oh, everyone's doubting their salvation. Well, sure they are. Because first of all, they believe it came from them. So is my faith really, my, is, it strong, is it really the right kind of faith? And they're looking at what they did, the prayer. Did I say it right? Did I mean it right? Was I sincere enough the first time? 
They're looking completely at themselves. No wonder they're riddled with doubt. I've told you before that lady at our church, our last church, 20 years a Christian, after praying a sinner's prayer at an invitation at a church, at an altar, 20 years later comes back for assurance of salvation. Praise the same sinner's prayer. How do you find, how do you find uh, confidence in the same thing that brought you doubt in the first place? And how in 20 years do you not know you're saved? You didn't see God do anything in your life in the last 20 years? Because you're looking inward. It doesn't matter what God's done in my heart. Did I say the right thing? Examine yourself by looking to God. Do I believe in my inmost being that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, I do. That doesn't come from me. That doesn't come from me. Can anything I do commend me to God? No. And this is from a guy who used to believe that it could. I told you, I wore the suit on Sunday and carried the big Bible and preached in the youth group. because I thought that even though I was, you know, angry and belligerent and vile and addicted to porn, surely if I'm the best kid in the youth group, God's going to accept me. I believed that my works would at least count for something to God. Today, I don't believe that. That doesn't come from me. That comes from the work of God. Only he could change that in me. I couldn't do it myself. Is there fruit in my life? Let's say over 10 years. A person saved 10 years. Has God given me new desires than I once had? Has God directly answered prayer or spoken to me to me directly in his word? Now, I've been in services where I was dealing with something, and it was like the preacher was talking directly to me. I'm like, how did he know I was doing that? That's, that's a sign I'm saved. Because if I'm dead in my sins, I'm not going to hear that. I remember one time we went to a church. And it was a wicked church. It wasn't even a good church. I don't think the pastor saved. But God can speak through a donkey, right? I, I was all mad because I didn't get a promotion at work. I remember which job that was now. I didn't get a promotion at work. In the middle of the sermon, I'm just stewing over it. And the pastor's on some weird time. It was not related at all to workplaces. And out of nowhere, he goes, and someone in here, you probably didn't get that promotion because you didn't deserve it. You, you don't do a good job at work. And I thought to myself, did she tell him I won the promotion? Does she know I don't do a good job at work? No, the Lord knows. And he knew I needed to hear that. I'm saved. He speaks to me through preaching, through reading his word. Do I hate sin and my own internal corruption? That's not, that doesn't come from me. Do I long to know and love Jesus? Yes. That doesn't come from me. These are all things the Spirit does within us. Look to the fruit of your life. Don't look to yourself and what you've done. Look to the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And don't look to what you do, right? Because there's a lot of false Christians who do a lot of religious things. But why do you do what you do? Do you hate sin? Do you love Jesus? Do you struggle with your sin? 
Those are signs that you're saved. Look to the fruit of the Spirit, not to yourself, but to what God has done. If you look to yourself, you're going to say, well, I walk around with a triple decker. And I go to all these things and I preach and I take the offering and, and uh, I, I, I do that. I work the sound booth. I'm a deacon in church. I single-handedly tore apart all the pews in the church. Good job, Rebecca. But you know what? A lost person can do all those things. But when you single-handedly tear apart all the, churches and all the pews in the church by yourself because you love Jesus, that's different. That's different than just busy work. You understand what I'm saying? Why do you do what you do? Because God's working in you to do that. That's the evidence of your salvation. The American church is so full of doubt because they're looking to themselves as the cause and the end of their salvation. Not God. I'm going over. I apologize for that. Go back to Philippians 1. Let's finish there in our text. Paul says, being confident. Where does this confidence come from? He goes on. That he which have begun a good work in you. His confidence is not that they were really smart and made a good decision from which they may now turn away. His confidence was not in, I gave such a great evidence for Jesus, but I'm afraid they'll find better evidence over here and turn away. His confidence was not in his work or their decision. His confidence was that God had begun that work. It was truly of God. And he will finish the work that he starts. That's where his confidence comes from. His confidence is rooted in the fact that God began this work, and if God began the work, there's confidence it will be completed. God doesn't do shoddy work. Nor can we say that God saves us, but we keep ourselves saved. Paul had confidence that God started the work and he would finish it. Look at the end of the verse. We'll perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's his work from start to finish. And this brings us great confidence. We don't have that confidence in the American church. I'm not saying us. I'm saying Christianity as a whole in America is full of doubts. Everyone doubts their salvation. Paul is like, I'm confident. This is God's work. He's going to finish it. As I stand before you today, I have been a person who has doubted my salvation many times. As I stand here this morning, I have no doubts at all that I'm saved. Because I know God is working. I know that what I believe and the things in my heart have come from God that did not come from inside me. And because he began this work, he will finish it one day. There's zero doubt. Zero doubt. None. It's the same confidence Paul expresses in Romans 8, 29 and 30. Let me read you this. Listen. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. He foreknew a people, and those people he predestined. Now, some people say, well, he only predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son. So basically, the predestining was done to this nameless, faceless group, and anybody who chooses to get saved, they join that group, and they're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
There's a problem with that. There's a chain going on here. You understand that? There's a chain going on here. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Do you understand that? There's no break there. There's no break. He foreknew, foreordained, called, justified, glorified. There's confidence there that God sees it all the way through from foreknowing to glorification. Your salvation, church, my salvation, is a finished work of Christ. We contribute nothing. You understand that? Nothing to our salvation. He raised us from the dead. He gave us faith to believe. He gave us repentance. He opened our heart to the preaching of the gospel. He did all those things. He, 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 not us. Not us at all. He did everything. He started it. He's maintaining it. He will finish it. This should bring great confidence to anyone, anyone doubting their salvation today. It's all a work of God. If you see evidence of that work of God, you're saved. And you will be saved to the day of Jesus Christ. Because what he has begun in you, he will perform it. And there's great confidence in that. I am wholeheartedly convinced God will keep you and perfect you in Christ if indeed you're one of his. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much this morning for this time together in the word. I wanted so much to convey to our folks how outside of us our salvation is. It is completely your work from start to finish. We contribute nothing but the sin that made it necessary. I pray that our people would not be tossed on ways of doubt and confusion, but that we'd have a people confident in the work that you're doing. They would rest themselves that you have started and you will see all the way through to the day of Christ the completion of the work that you started in them. That gives us great boldness, Lord. Boldness to face our sin. Boldness in days of trial and temptation. Boldness on the mountaintops. Boldness in the valley. Boldness with sinners. And boldness with saints. Bring us to the same confidence, Lord. The work of salvation is yours and yours alone. And you will perform it. Thank you so much for the gift of your grace. The gift of faith. For the repentance you've given us. For the sight to our blind eyes. For raising us from the dead. Some might ask me, why did God choose you and not others? I don't know. But definitely not because of me. I am a product of the undeserved favor of God. Make us bold to proclaim your word, knowing that your sheep will hear your voice and they will follow you. I believe this great doctrine of election 
takes the burden of evangelism off the evangelist. It's not my job to get converts or grow numbers. It's my job to be faithful to the message. And you will call your people. We love you, Lord. We're just undeserving sinners. Clay in the hands of the potter. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we claim. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.